Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm Kelsey Coleman here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Associate Professor of Art, Aaron Schmidt. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been a part of um, CMU for 10 years now, I believe, and I think it's so interesting your art form and what you do because it's so interactive and I think it's pretty unique to a college campus. Can you kind of dive into what it is that you do on a daily basis and how you got started in it? Yeah, um, I teach um, at CMU in the fine arts department. I teach metal casting as one of my primary sculptural mediums that um, I teach the students. And uh, it is and can be really... um, labor-intensive and uh, spectacular to witness because we are, you know, transforming these uh, stubborn materials, you know, precious metals, sometimes bronze, brass, aluminum, iron, into a liquid state and transferring that into molds and casting things and making shapes of our original creations into sculptures. So um, when you say, like, on a daily basis, I think, yeah, um, most days we're melting something down and transforming it into uh, an object that will last, you know, that potentially thousands of years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a fun job and it's really rewarding and exciting to do. So it's not, I would say very, like Kelsey mentioned, common art form. So what made you get into casting, casting metals? Uh, well, originally, uh, as a child, my dad taught sculpture. So I was part of the college atmosphere and academia as a child, growing up in this foundry studio, art studio atmosphere. So I was exposed to it at a very early age. Um, <clears throat> not to say that I necessarily thought from the beginning of being exposed to metal casting, that's what I want to do. I want to teach sculpture just like my father. But at a certain age, I did make that decision Um and at a young age, I was just able to dabble and play and, and um, use the mold materials and the different materials in the studio as like my childhood toys, essentially. And my dad occasionally would then see some creation I made with blocks of plaster or sand or something and um, say, oh, that might work. And we'll just do this and that to it and tweak it a little bit and cast metal into it. And I think I poured my first iron when I was about eight years old. So I had a leather jacket on down to my ankles and I was holding the, the holding device, the ladle full of liquid iron and casting it. And so, um, I mean, that's how I got into it. Right. And then I went to college for it and it was probably in graduate school where I made the decision to commit to, um, teaching. I, I was exposed to teaching at, as a graduate student, as a TA, and then also my own classes. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, the rest is history. And I've been here at CMU now for 10 years and, and counting and counting. Yeah. How about this appreciation for art? Because we've, I think everybody can appreciate some sort of, um, some sort of art, whether it's painting or a sculpture, but other outside of your father, did you have all this exposure to all these different mediums? Because it seems like you're really a creative how you combine all these different pieces and how you create uh, what you do. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, throughout the years and throughout 
<clears throat> my schooling, throughout my travels, I've been exposed to all different kinds of mediums and art forms. And metal casting isn't definitely isn't the only sculptural practice that I, you know, perform or teach. Um, sculpture really is this. I like to tell my students it's this wide umbrella that encapsulates so many different media and almost like sub disciplines, if you will. I mean, sculpture can. Uh, be things that are video. Like it could be sound based. It could be light based. It could be performance. It could be carved out of stone. It could be cut out of wood. It could be made out of, I don't know, earplugs or whatever. I mean, sculpture can really be so many different things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've traveled a lot. I've been to a lot of museums. I've been influenced by a lot of different contemporary, um, and traditional artists, um, and I think my work um, reflects that in a way. If you've seen some of the stuff on my website, it's not it's not all metal casting. Um, definitely also in graduate school, there I had a divergence from that kind of uh, making for a while. So I've carved things out of stone. I've made things out of non-traditional materials. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually finding it kind of hard to describe what your art looks like because it really is unique and fascinating and it does have all these different mediums to it and and it it's not just like oh here not not to say this is bad but you know here's a landscape i'm painting this you know i feel like it's always different and you can't it's not necessarily identifiable as your art would you say that's true um yeah i think there's definitely a, ver a variety of types of work that i make that uh, can be differentiated from one another. Um, I would hope that there's a common theme that people might say, oh, that kind of looks like an Aaron Schmidt, you know, um, or that's crazy enough, maybe that's an Aaron Schmidt piece or something, you know, like that. Um, but yeah, I try to not only um, keep it fresh, you know, uh, to my viewer, but fresh for myself too. So I'm constantly trying new things and um, creating new forms and exploring new technologies um, in my artwork. Yeah. So when I came to CMU as a staff member about six years ago, I remember one of the first events I attended was Arttoberfest, which is put on by our art and design department. And it's awesome. It's right outside of our Jack Kephart Fine Arts Building. And it's everything from, I remember there was students spray painting this wall. There was a green screen where they were filming different people. There was a steamroller out on the sidewalk. There was chalk, chalk art on the sidewalk. Um, it was it was really cool. And it was all these immersive, there were students throwing clay and you could be a part of all of it. And then to me, one of the most fascinating parts of it was the iron pour that you and your students were doing. I had just never seen anything like that before. And it was art and it was performance. And I was hoping maybe you could describe a little bit about what an iron pour looks like for you and your students, for those that have never seen one before. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. And we do that every year we do our Arttoberfest. <clears throat> and typically, actually not typically, every year uh, my participation has been the iron pour. And I really involve all of my classes, all the students in all of levels of my classes. So 400 level students, advanced students to my beginning students and all levels uh, or all classes of like 3D design, which is an essential learning course on campus, which we have lots of sections. So there's probably 200 some students involved in it and some are more involved than others, but every single one is making something from the iron pour, whether it's a five to 10 pound low relief sculpture to a, I don't know, 250 pound giant iron casting 
to some kind of performance. Maybe you saw us pouring molten iron into a giant sphere and rolling it around to make a hollow casting. Or maybe you saw us pouring iron into a translucent block of ice and watching it melt through. Or maybe you saw us pour iron into a pumpkin that was carved like a jack-o'-lantern and the iron came splashing out of its mouth. Um, those are all so things that we've done <clears throat> different variations of over the years. Um, but the iron pour itself is, yeah, we, it's this big setup. It's this big, um, um, labor for us all to get the furnace ready, the molds ready, the materials ready. And what we're doing is we're melting down scrap materials. We're melting down bathtubs and sinks and radiators that sometimes are donated to us. Sometimes we're going out and finding in the world that people are getting rid of. Sometimes, um, it's a building that the university has bought and is going to relocate the building or, or, or tear it down to make space for more university, um, buildings to be built on that area. And they'll call me and say, Hey, there's some bathtubs and sinks and we can recycle this material. Um, so yeah, we melt, we melt that down and transform it into, to molds. And the activity of the iron pores, there's this furnace in the middle of the field. It's melting the metal. The students are, are grabbing the metal as it comes out of the furnace in pots that are called ladles. They're transferring that to these molds. And that activity is, it's producing about a hundred pounds of molten iron every 10 minutes or so. And we'll cast maybe 3,000 pounds of iron in an iron pour. So it's a spectacle that lasts for a while. If you're a viewer, you're, you're watching something happen every 10 minutes or so, or maybe even sooner than that, depending on how, how it's going. And, and at the end of it, there's 200 students or more that, um, that leave with an experience that they had to work together. They learned new skills. There was an element of danger, but they felt really cool because they were in the proper safety gear where they couldn't get burned by the metal. And a sense of camaraderie usually is, is developed through that process. It's, it's, I like to call it a ballet dance of fire. So it's something that has to be choreographed, but there's this element of surprise and danger where students have to be aware and on their tiptoes. Um, I hope that describes it. it I could I like, ramble on no, and on. Like, you didn't give me the, description. the, the signal. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, that's a perfect description because it does feel, you can feel their camaraderie when you're watching the students do it. And like you said, it does feel very choreographed, but there is that element of danger because it's this molten liquid that is burning bright orange and it's spilling over onto the grass sometimes. And then I do have to mention their safety gear is also one of my favorite because a lot of them are this reflective kind of silver astronaut looking suits and have more of the leather protective gear, but it's one of my favorite parts. I do love it. And if you haven't been to one, I would highly recommend you come to the next Arttoberfest that we have to watch our students um, and Professor Schmidt do this. Do you have to be some sort of pyro to want to get into this? Because you're dealing with yeah, molten hot liquid that I, I'm sure if anybody's ever lit a fire and just, you know, there's those people who just want to be the one lighting the fire. Is that kind of what you're finding with your students that they just have this love for this medium? I think that my class is definitely attractive to pyromaniacs. Yes. Um, I think that some students that uh, become really excited about metal casting and uh, interested in it and take it further than one or two classes aren't necessarily pyromaniacs, but they might have 
um, found something in the sort of transformative quality of the process of metal casting that's really exciting. And maybe it's a section of their brain that hadn't really worked before. And they were now having to understand things from a positive to a negative. So there's also this like mold making thing that's happening and you're, you're trying to understand how to transform an object into a different, into itself, into a different medium sometimes, or the process itself can transform what the object's shape is. And Oftentimes when I'm teaching it, my students are like, whoa, this is just mind-boggling, the way we have to to talk about this positive and this negative and making these empty spaces that get filled with the material that solidifies into you know the sculpture and then the, the mold is broken away. Um, so I think there's there's also aspects of that that are really attractive to students. And then a combination of, of the two things, I think, is what really... Um, makes a, a good metal cast sculptor is, is one that uh, is intrigued by the process of fire and somewhat drawn to it, you know, but also um, one that's intrigued and drawn to the enantiomorph, the, the negative space that you're trying to transform. Well, I think this probably goes back to us just being humans, right? Because whether you're the one doing like melting the metal or the one walking across the field and watching Oktoberfest, we're all drawn to what you all are doing. And I think, you know, maybe that has something to do with when humans discovered fire and they could, you know, take the food and transition that into something different. And then they would spend less time hunting and gathering and more time thinking. And so maybe it has something to do with that because I think everybody really finds enjoyment with this. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I get very philosophical sometimes with my students, especially around the iron pour time. Um, when we talk about metal casting and we talk about the origins of things and sometimes I'll joke around and, and I'll say, you know, why do you think the color of your blood is red? And they're like, Oh, iron, you know, I'm like, where do you think that iron came from? You know, maybe there was a star, you know, billions of you know, light years away that exploded and it sent its heavy metals hurling through the universe and they coagulated into the ball of the core of our earth that is mostly made of iron and the crust of our earth has these trace amounts. So really, if you think about it, part of your blood is stardust from some sun that exploded millions of light years away or whatever. And so I don't, I don't know. I love that. Uh, yeah, I really <laughs> it makes like me feel that. pretty cool that I have stardust right exactly. My yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to you mentioned a piece of equipment um, you use in these pores or um, in the bronze pores, and it's a foundry. So for those listeners who don't know what a foundry is, can you explain what it is and maybe the fact that, as far as I know, it's a pretty unique feature that we have here on our college campus, and not a lot of universities have one. Um, yeah, I mean, our uh, the foundry is really the. Um, the space that inhabits the furnaces and the furnaces can take different forms. There can be a gas furnace that we have for bronze and aluminum and brass. And that's sort of a stationary thing that is located in the art building in the studio for metal casting or the cupola furnace, which is the one that you've seen on Artoberfest, which can be moved around and sem somewhat portable and um, is what melts iron. Um, but the, the foundry itself is, is pretty unique. And I've gotten, I've got to say, 
give a little shout out to the to the university. They have given me a lot of support over the years of, of acquiring new equipment and specialized equipment to make our metal casting facility really um, state of the art. I tell a lot of tours that come through, you've got really what an R1 school, like a, say a Big Ten school or something, would have in terms of research equipment for metal casting, but in a small um, you know, university like Colorado Mesa University. So um, yeah, it's, it's unique in that way. And, and iron casting especially is unique. I think we're one of two schools maybe in, in Colorado, in the state of Colorado, that practice iron casting in their art department. I think maybe the School of Mines does as well, but more of like a research sort of um, scientific sort of research based, not an artistic base. I love that because I think it um, lends itself to the fact that CMU really does offer our students these hands-on experiences that most students wouldn't get until they were at a graduate level or above. But we've got our students in their freshman year as they're taking courses and on up um, through their studies here. And they're getting that hands-on, really unique, I feel like, experiences. Yeah, that's it's one of the more rewarding parts of the, the job, actually, is to see someone's you know, reaction to that kind of atmosphere and that kind of, um, you know, um, uh, metal casting process, uh, for the first time, they're just like blown away. Like I just made that, I know how to do this now, you, you know, so yeah, it's cool. Thank you. You participated in some performative installation with your, your cast iron, uh, art form in Crested Butte and I, you know, you're pouring this liquid, I want to say lava, because that's what it looks like, down this mountain, and it's in this mold. But it takes, it, this whole art form, it looks like it's so quick, you know, it takes just minutes for this to flow through, but really you're building this mold that may take, what, how long does it take to create that mold, and, and what is it made out of, and then what's left? I mean, do you keep that? Do you, what happens? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting piece in the sense of we were talking about sculpture being this umbrella of different and encompassing these different mediums. Um, so I did a couple pieces at Crested Butte through the Crested Butte Art Center um, that were outside the town of Crested Butte, overlooking the town of Crested Butte, kind of off the grid in this wilderness setting where we cast iron down these different troughs that I made. Um, and they were called ore line pieces. And in the background of the pieces, there were something was framed, and so one of them the, that maybe you saw on my website was Orline Two, Red Mountain, which shows the mountain range next to Crested Butte, which is they known as Red Mountain, um, which was a mining mountain, um, and sort of tied into the history of Crested Butte. And the piece itself um, sort of looks like sluices or troughs or something. And we cast iron down these wooden and sand, resin-bonded sand troughs to create this line of molten iron that, you're right, only lasted for seconds. You know, so the action itself of casting the metal down these troughs, they were maybe frozen in a photograph for a second, but it only lasted for maybe, I don't know, 20 seconds of traveling through this um, system of troughs that I made. Uh, and that piece, yeah, it's that there's people there that watched it. They knew it was going to happen. It was an event that was publicized. Um, it was one of many performances that happened during that iron pour. Um, and that there was actually 
um, artists from all over the country came to Crested Butte to have this collaborative iron pour through the art center. And some brought other, some were local, some were from, gosh, Florida and Alabama. Um, and there's several different schools there. Um, but it was one of many performances that happened that day. But once it was done, that 20 seconds of metal casting and kind of the ooh and the ah of watching it flow down this trough, uh, the piece was, you know, it was ultimately it was just destroyed and t- taken apart, but it was captured in a photograph. So the piece really became, you know, this performance and the documentation of it becomes the commodity, if you will. If I were, you know, to sell that piece, I'd be selling the photograph of it. Um, otherwise, it was about being there and seeing it. And then the iron sort of, it licks the ground and, and it, you know, burns into the actual soil of the, the site for a second. And that's in the photograph as well. Well, so. and I think too, I mean, just uh, you, you have to be creative in the way you created the mold, right? Like you're the one deciding what it looks like and how, how it flows, you know, is it going to be in one big circle? Is it going to be in these really thin lines that kind of sway like a snake? You know, you're the, you're the mastermind behind creating what this metal goes through. Yeah, and it's it's unpredictable. It never really flows the way you can control it, but there's so many factors of the slope that it's going down, the rate at which you're pouring, and and then there's things that are beyond my control. Who's pouring the metal? It's not I can't do all of it, you know. And so how fast are they doing it? And but it came out great. And uh, I did three of them. There were three different ore lines, and each one had a different thing in the background. One was um, Crested Butte, Mount Crested Butte. Uh, one was the Red Mountain, and then the third was um, actually maroon bells that you could see from really far away in the distance. Um, so it's beautiful, and we'll have that photo up on CMU now on our social media, cool. so everybody can see see that great work. So you've been an artist since you were eight, nine, ten years old, maybe even younger than that. So I know you've probably worked with a lot of different materials and have worked on a lot of different projects throughout your time. Can you tell us maybe what's either your favorite um, medium to work with and or what's maybe one of your favorite projects that you've worked on? Mm, you're going to make me choose my favorite, mm-hmm. huh? Like choosing your favorite child. child. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've done some some really interesting um, stuff overseas. And I mean, I like to tell the story about um, this large scale site-specific installation I made in Latvia as part of the International Conference on Contemporary Cast Iron Sculpture. It's a long title. Um, but it was in outside of Riga, um, Latvia, and Riga's the capital, in this place called Pedvale Open Air Museum, which is a large sculpture park in the sort of rural landscape of Latvia. And Latvia's an Eastern European country. It's... Um, was occupied by Russia for a while, gained its independence in 93, I think. And um, I made this piece as part of a symposium called Iron and Stone, where there, I think there were seven artists and artist teams that created site-specific works, works that they created at the sculpture park that would live and stay at the sculpture park after they were made, that um, somehow incorporated both stone and iron together. And we worked for five weeks. I brought a couple students from CMU with me to help me and uh, created a piece I called Meteorite that was a, um, it's still there, so, um, that is 
a seven-ton granite boulder that looks as though it is the meteorite and has crashed to the earth and dug a trench and ended in a splash of iron that's frozen, so cast iron sort of skirt of metal splashing up from the ground around it, and I think that was like 4,000 pounds of iron. So it's this massively large-scale iron, stone, and earth kind of um, sculpture. It took five weeks to make, and at the end of the Iron and Stone Symposium, the International Conference came to that site to have their conference. So you had people from all over the world that specialized in contemporary cast iron sculpture. And they came to exhibit, uh, to see the exhibit of the Iron and Stone pieces, as well as, you know, carrying all the other aspects of the conference. But the first night was them walking through this, I think it was like a 50 acre, I can't remember. Uh, it might have even been more than that, but a, quite a large outdoor sculpture park. And they toured around from site to site, seeing these new works that have been created by, you know, these seven teams. And as they came to my piece, I had lined this trench. And I think the trench was, I don't know, 100, 150 feet long. So it looks as if you can visualize this, it looks as if this meteor hit the ground and it dug this long 150 foot trench. And I lined it with hay and diesel fuel. So in the, you know, opening reception crowd came over the hillside, I lit it on fire and it looked like it had really just landed, right? And I'd found these giant fireworks at this strange Latvian fireworks store um, that were these Chinese mortars, and I lit them off. So there's just this kind of chaos going on as they came over the hill, and things are burning, there's smoke, there's explosions, and then after all the sort of dust and smoke settled, there's this you know, meteorite with a splash of iron around it. And so that I like to tell that story because it's just kind of, it was a fun event for the opening, but it's also one of the larger scale and more challenging projects that I, I took on. I'm jealous that I wasn't there. Listening to you describe your art is something else, and it makes me wish I could have been there. Yeah, it kind of had a little performative aspect to it at the end, I guess. Yeah. Through your career, have you seen an appreciation for art grow? Has it stayed the same? Are you getting, you know, more people showing up to these performative art installations than than previously? Um, you know, I mean, I right now I just think of things as like pre-COVID and post-COVID. <laughs> so I feel like the the students that I'm getting now, we stayed in class in person for the most of the pandemic. We wore masks and we did iron pours wearing masks, you know. We stayed socially distanced because there was a ladle of molten metal between us, right? I was able to get a bunch of safety gear, so everyone got their own safety gear. We didn't have to share anything. Um, but um, after COVID, the, the students that came back to the classroom where it is hands-on and we are making stuff, there was this greater appre appreciation for it, you know, because so much of our academic life went online and it was all these Zoom meetings and, you know, this class, could you could read your paper online. To get into the studio where you had to be around people, you had to do stuff with other people and make stuff, that's why they'd shot that commercial, right? We had to do it as a team. Um, so in that sense, I mean, through, you know, the academic turmoil of COVID, we stayed flat, if not gained a little bit more um, traction in what we teach in the hands-on art forms. I don't know if that's really the answer to your question, but 
Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, for myself, I just, I think being able to just see people create and, and just really spend their time around art is, is, is something that I enjoy. And I'm really happy that you were here today to kind of describe all these varietals of, of art that you do. And, and we're just so fortunate to have you as part of our campus community. So thanks for being here today. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.